Good to see everyone this morning. Well, I had a, a couple of difficult decisions to make about seven weeks ago. Um, namely, what to do with the very last verse of John chapter 7 and the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. So 12 verses in total, the last verse of John 7 and the first 11 verses of John 8. I told you, if you were here seven weeks ago, that I was going to skip over those verses and return to them once I finished preaching through John chapter 8. Well, last week I finished John 8, and so now you're entitled to an explanation as to why I skipped those 12 verses, which is something I have never done in nine years of being here. For an expository preacher, someone who preaches sequentially through books of the Bible, skipping verses is a no-no. And so I told you I was going to come back, and seven weeks ago now, I skipped those verses, and today is the day that we come back. And so um, if you have a Bible open, uh, good. If not, you're going to need a physical Bible open this morning because I want to point your attention to some things. If you don't have one, there's one right in the seat in front of you, and I invite you to turn it to page 521. I want to show you something that's written there, either in a footnote of your Bible or something that's written in the margin. Uh, it's, it's in different Bibles, but it's there in every Bible. So it's page 521 in the Bible that's in front of you. I don't know what page in your personal Bible. But it's at the end of John 7, and right in between that and the beginning of John 8, you'll see the footnote reads this. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Uh, you'll also notice that there are double brackets around 753 all the way through 811. When you're reading at home, you probably are like, well, I don't know what that means, so I'll just skip it. That's what I did for most of my life. No, don't do that. Those double brackets mean something. Whenever you see double brackets in your Bible, any English Bible, it means, get ready, it means that this portion or this word or this verse cannot be verified as Scripture. It can't be. And so, this doesn't happen often. It's very, 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 very rare. As a matter of fact, what you're looking at right now is the largest spot in the entire Bible. That's why it has to be addressed. So I had this tough decision to make, and after being in Los Angeles and or talking with some other guys who preached through the Gospel of John, and they asked me, what are you going to do when you get to John 8? And I said, I haven't decided yet, because I knew what they were talking about. So I had these hard decisions, and now that we've finished John 8, I'm going to tell you all about this. So today is going to be a very rare kind of a sermon. As a matter of fact, the first half of this, it's not going to feel like a sermon. It's going to feel like you're back in school. It's going to feel like you're in a classroom. If you have a notebook, you're going to want to get it out because I'm going to give you some things that you some of you have never heard what I'm going to tell you. I, I know that because I didn't hear it from the pulpit ever. I had to hear it in a Sunday school class or once I got to college. So the first half, you're going to say, this doesn't sound much like a sermon. It's because it isn't. What I'm going to do for the first 20 minutes belongs in a classroom. But listen... There are occasions, there are occasions where every faithful preacher has to blur those lines, where the classroom has to come to the pulpit or the pulpit comes to the classroom. Today is one of those rare occasions that I get to do something that only you get to do like once every five or ten years from a pulpit ministry. 
I'm going to teach you about textual criticism. It's something that you would learn if you went to Bible college or seminary, and I'm going to give you like a crash course in it for about 15 minutes. Is anybody interested? Okay, because if somebody comes to you and says, well, what about this thing in the Bible I heard about? This, and you need to have at least a little bit of an answer. What I do want to tell you is you don't have to know a lot about this. This is mainly for pastors and scholars. But you do need to know a little bit about this. And that's what I'm going to give you, just a taste of it this morning. So let's get started, shall we? The scientific discipline known as textual criticism uh, is something that I mentioned to you a few months ago, if you were here, when I mentioned the man named Bart Ehrman, who is a dangerous man, uh, who is a poor scholar, but who's made a bunch of bucks selling books that have led thousands and thousands of young adults who don't know any better out of the church, maybe never to come back again, because he's a very poor scholar that has led people to doubt the reliability of the New Testament. And he talks a lot about the passage I'm about to preach to you. By the way, I am going to preach this passage, but just, just wait until I get there, okay? So Bart Ehrman is a textual critic, and I want to tell you about what he does for a living. Textual criticism is a wonderful discipline. It's necessary to know what is the Bible and what isn't the Bible. So here's a definition of what textual criticism is. It's on the screen for you. Textual criticism is the scholarly discipline that's focused on analyzing and comparing ancient manuscripts of the New Testament to reconstruct the most accurate original text. So like Indiana Jones, an archaeologist is digging, and they come to a scroll. <gasps> what do you think it is? And they go and they open it. Oh my goodness, this is an ancient copy of the New Testament. They go back, and these textual critics analyze, whether it's fragments or whole copies, to determine what is this that we're holding. Does it actually match what we know is written by John or Paul or James or, or so on? Okay, That's what a textual critic does. It's a good discipline. We need these guys. Uh, so... Let me offer you a little bit of an explanation as to why the New Testament, listen to this, you have to hear this, why the New Testament is the single most reliable ancient manuscript that has ever been found in the history of mankind. To do that, I want to show you a couple things. Um, first, the first printed copy, first printed copy that we ever had of the New Testament happened around the 1500s, the early 1500s, like 1506, I think it was, by Erasmus. That was the first one off the printing press. Before that time, what we had was handwritten copies, handwritten by faithful copyists, and this was all they did for a living. They would take the copy of the original given to another person who sat and copied every crossing of a T, every dotting of an I. There are no T's and I's because it's written in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, but you get the idea. That's all they did, and they would pass it over, and then the next guy would copy and copy. That's all they did, and the work was checked. That's how we got, for the first 1,500 years, that's how we got our Bible until the printing press in 1506 when Erasmus first did this. Uh, we do not have, this sometimes comes as a shock to people, don't be shocked, we do not have in our possession any of the original manuscripts. That's not a problem. So what that means is we don't actually have a paper that has the ink that came out of the pen of John. We don't have the actual letter that Paul wrote. We don't have them. Well, we have our copies of those original manuscripts. Again, don't be concerned. That's not a problem. I'm going to get there. What we do have is absolutely astounding. 
And now I get to show you why it's so astounding. I want to compare for you a couple of other ancient works of literature that we have that have found their way into the history books that you find in our public schools. And no one doubts that stuff, do they? I want to show you how many copies of those things we have in our possession and just compare it to how many copies of the New Testament we have in our possession, okay? First one, Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars. Uh, this was written sometime between 58 and 50 B.C. That makes this really, really old. And by the way, you can go on Amazon and buy a copy of this now because we've printed it and copied it. All of these date from the 10th century or later. We only have 10 existing manuscripts of that. Okay? Second, we have 20 manuscripts of Livy's Roman History. By the way, that book, Livy's Roman History, is the go-to source for how we know anything about ancient Rome. If that didn't exist, we couldn't know anything at all about what happened. That's the, that's the source. So everything you look, if you go and study ancient Roman history in college, you'll say, oh, well, this fact, it's in my history book. You know where they got it from? That. And you know how many copies we have? 20 of them. And no one doubts it. It's fact. It's history. We only have two manuscripts for Tacitus' histories in the annals. By the way, he is a very often quoted historian. If you go to Bible college, you're going to say Tacitus over and over and over and over and over again because he's such a reliable historian. We only have two. Two. Now, I just picked three. I had like 40 that I wanted to show you. Three's enough. We don't have very many ancient manuscripts of anything that we say is totally reliable. Can I show you how many New Testament manuscripts we have? Big reveal moment. We have in our possession 5,801 manuscripts of the New Testament. These are all handwritten copies of the New Testament in part or in total preserved in libraries all over the world and now captured electronically so that we don't lose any of these. No other book in ancient history comes even close to the wealth of diverse preservation that we have in the New Testament. This is absolutely staggering how many copies of the New Testament. Here's what a textual critic does. They take all these 5,801 manuscripts and they compare. What does this one say? And does it compare? Okay, these are identical. What does this one say? It's identical. From time to time, they will come in contact with a, what's called a, a variant. And usually it's absolutely minor, like the word uh, that's not there. Or it's there here and in 500 manuscripts it's there and the word uh isn't there in this one. This, what you're about to look at, is the largest variant we have. This section of scripture, John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8.11, is almost unanimously agreed by every New Testament scholar that has ever lived not to be scripture. This, what you're reading, is not Bible. Now, I'm going to show you three reasons why I agree with the best New Testament scholars in the world that John 7.53 through John 8.11 is excluded from being scripture. Here are the three reasons presented to me over the years that have convinced me of this fact. First, 100% absence in the earliest manuscripts. That means the closest we get to what John actually wrote, it's not there. As a matter of fact, 
It doesn't even show up on the scene until the 12th century when suddenly it's just there. The fact that it's absent 100% of the time, there is not one ancient manuscript, the closer we get to John's actual date. If we found even one, I'd say, oh, well, maybe that's the one. But there's not one. It's just not there. And because we have so many manuscripts, this, this absolutely excludes it from being scripture. Let me give you a couple quotes from the leading New Testament scholars in the world. First is Don Carson. Don Carson is considered by most in my circles to be the best New Testament scholar maybe ever to live. Don Carson said this, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them, and modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or relegate it to a footnote. And that's what I'm suggesting. This, this belongs there as a footnote. Leon Morris, he said, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. He's absolutely right. It's impossible. Second reason why I'm convinced that this section is not scripture is this. We have no idea who wrote this or where it belongs. Let me tell you why. Um, in a lot of the old manuscripts, if you went into these libraries and looked at these old manuscripts, you'd say, oh, there it is, right there. In John 7, 53 through 8, 11, and then you look over at the next manuscript, what in the world? They have it there in John 14. And then you look over at this manuscript, what in the world? It's over there in John chapter 5. And then you go over here, you're not going to believe this. Here it's in Luke. We have three or four manuscripts where this section is written in Luke. And it's not even just once in Luke, it's in the beginning of Luke, and then in another manuscript, it's at the end of Luke. So we have no idea. Was it John who wrote it? Was it Luke who wrote it? No one knows. Because it was added in the 12th century. Here's Bruce Metzger, one of the world's greatest authorities on the New Testament before his death in 2007. He said this, the evidence, he uses some silly words here, you can laugh if you want to. The evidence for the non-Johannine, that means it's not written by John, this is how scholars talk. The non-Johannine origin of the pericope, fancy word for paragraph, of the uh, adulteress is overwhelming. He's saying, John didn't write this. <laughs> and scholars like to sound fancy and smart. So non-Johannine pericope. There, you learned two new words today. By the way, that's the way all of my doctoral books are written, and that makes it so hard to read. So pray for me, please. Uh, Andreas Kostenberger a highly regarded New Testament scholar. This represents overwhelming evidence that this section is non-Johannine. John did not write this. Every scholar agrees. In fact, if you were doing sermon prep with me this week, here's what you would do. You'd sit alongside me and I'd say, let me show you how we do this. First, we're going to look at some modern scholars and we're going to look at what commentators have written. Then we're going to look at some scholars from like the Reformation period when they got really serious about the Bible. And then we're going to try to find some ancient scholars and make sure that they all agree. If you were to go and look for ancient scholars, that means early, early church fathers, and you can find all kinds of commentaries. Try to find what they've written on this. Guess how many there are? Zero. Not one wrote about this. Because it wasn't in their Bibles. It didn't exist. That's how we know this got added later by some scribe. But here's the interesting thing. Those of you whose hearts are starting to pound and wonder if you can trust your translation of the New Testament, don't worry. Every single one of these scholars, including Ben Carson and all of them, they all unanimously agree that this probably really did happen. And it probably happened exactly as it was written. 
Let me remind you of something that I showed you as we started this sermon series. The very, very last verse of the gospel according to John. I have it on the screen for you. Look what it says. The last verse, it says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What you're reading here is one of those many other things that Jesus did that there were many eyewitnesses to see that got circulated as an oral tradition, which is the way Jews circulated truth. And it eventually said, someone has got to make sure that this gets passed along. And that one scribe took it upon himself to put it in here, and it continued to get passed along. That's likely how this happened. And yet, every single one of these scholars thinks this is probably, most likely, a very true account. So what in the world would you do if you were the preacher of this church? We preach the Bible here. And every one of these scholars that I have in my book, so I rely on for help, they all tell me, this isn't Bible. So you say, my goodness, this is a Bible church. And the only authority that this man has up here is that he's preaching the Bible, and they're telling me, this isn't Bible, and you should go, gulp. <laughs> what do you do as a preacher? Well, I'm going to handle this the way that all, virtually all, of the faithful expository preachers have handled it in the past. Here's what I'm going to do. I am going to preach this text to you because it is very likely that it did happen. But I'm going to preach it in such a way, listen closely to this, I'm going to show you the truths that are in this passage in such a way that you won't need to rely on these to know that these truths are true. Does that make sense? I'm going to show you that they're true by showing you that everywhere else in the New Testament proves that these things are true. So that when you go and have conversations with your friends, you will never need to rely on John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 as a doctrinal text. You won't find in any one of our doctrinal statements this used as evidence because it isn't Bible. Okay? So that's the way I'm going to handle it for you today. I believe this story is 100% true. But the problem is, if it's not Bible, we can't be 100% sure that it's without error and we can't be 100% sure that it is inerrant and for you to base your life upon. So it is a true story, I believe, but we're going to relegate it to a story that's been passed down through oral tradition. That's the classroom. Did you all survive? If you have further questions about that, I would love to sit down over an omelet and talk about it with you. Now we need to change gears, and I want to give you something to worship about. So I want to pray. And I ask God that he would help us to shift our minds now onto this beautiful story of the woman caught in adultery. Father, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share these, these little bits of knowledge with my friends. And I pray that you would help us to be faithful now as we look at this touching story of our Jesus with a woman caught red-handed in sin. And help us to Come face to face with grace this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Here it is. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All of the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. 
And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The story is the record that was passed down orally about traps that were sent, set for Jesus. And as I've told you from the beginning, uh, we don't have to rely on this passage to know that this was the M.O. of his enemies. They were trap setters. That's what they did. You'll remember a couple of these that are recorded elsewhere in the Gospels so that you don't need to rely on this passage to know this is how they did it. You remember the one in Matthew chapter 22 where they tried to say, hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Remember how brilliantly he answered, well, whose face is on the coin? Give to Caesar what's his and give to God what's his. Brilliant, right? There's another trap they set for him. Earlier in Matthew 12, the Pharisees questioned Jesus about... Um, whether or not a woman who was married to several brothers, when she gets to heaven, whose wife will she be? Remember that trap? And he's like, you're not married when you get to heaven. You'll be like the angels. You don't, there is no marriage in heaven. They tried to trap him there. And remember again, later in Matthew, the Sadducees and the Pharisees tried to trap him again about whether or not he should be eating and picking grain off on the Sabbath day. They were constantly trying to set traps so that they could undermine his authority and show everybody we know more about the law of Moses than Jesus does. So this was their constant practice. They were trying to set a trap with him. Here in John chapter 8, it's the same exact thing. They drug this woman out into the public. Where was the man, by the way? They drug this woman out into the public to use as bait to trap Jesus. This wasn't about the woman. This was about Jesus and the authorities. And so they drag her out, and they say, Jesus, the law of Moses says we should stone such a woman. What do you have to say about this? And they're not wrong. Here's what the law of Moses actually says, and Jesus knows it. Leviticus 20 says this. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And eight verses prior, it tells us what kind of capital punishment they practiced back then, and it was stoning. And so, here's the trap. Pay attention, because this is the whole point of what's happening here. They know that if Jesus were to exercise justice here, which he can't, because he knows the law of Moses, if he was to say, no, she broke the law, and we know what it says in God's law, she has to be stoned. If he's to do that, you know what he's doing? He's breaking Roman law. 
because the Romans refused to allow the Jews to exercise capital punishment. That's why in a little while you're going to see the Pharisees can't hang him on the cross. So they have to go to Pilate to get Pilate to hang him on a cross because they can't kill him. So if Jesus was to exercise justice here against this woman, he's breaking Roman law, and they're going to run and tell the Romans and say, get him! But if he decides to exercise mercy here, they would say, you see, he's breaking God's law. You know God's law says somebody like this is supposed to be stoned, so get him! So he's being pulled between the law of Moses and the law of Rome. And they're saying, so tell us, Judge Jesus, what's it going to be? Justice or mercy? Pick one, and as soon as you do, we're running and telling on you. They've got him. They've got him in a trap. Mercy or justice? Let me tell you something, friends. Parents in the room, please listen to me. Parents and grandparents or those who want to be parents someday. Mercy and justice is what is placed upon someone who is in authority over anyone else. What makes parenting so difficult is this one thing. You are constantly having to choose whether or not you're going to exercise justice, lay down the law, or whether you're going to show mercy. Sometimes you're going to get it right, and sometimes you're going to absolutely butcher it. But here's what parenting is all about. As a parent, you have been given the responsibility of God to exercise discipline in your household. As the author of Hebrews says, any father or mother who does not discipline their child, they don't love them. Love disciplines, right? So when your child comes home and they've broken one of the house laws, one of the house rules, do you exercise the same kind of sentence upon them every single time without regard for the context. So if you say lying is a house rule and we have a no tolerance policy for lying and you say to your daughter who has a boyfriend, you have a curfew and you need to be home, you can't be out with your boyfriend until this time and she lies to you. Are you going to exercise the same kind of justice as you would as if she lied to you because they're throwing a surprise party for you and she's like, hey dad, let's you and me go out to have a private dinner alone. And in reality, the dad gets there and all of his friends and family are waiting for you. And she lied to you. Are you going to have the same kind of judgment upon her as she lied about her boyfriend, as she will about the surprise party? Probably not. You know that there's, there's a, a spectrum of how you can apply the laws in your household. You, as the judge of that household, you know. There's an application that I can do that's minor, maybe probation. And then there's like a capital punishment. Hopefully not capital punishment in your household. But you get the point. You, as the judge, God's appointed judge in that household, have to know, how do I apply the law? Sometimes you have to show mercy, and when you do, you'll be showcasing the grace of God. Sometimes you have to say, you have done this over and over again. You are getting the full punishment that we told you was coming. Get ready. Justice and mercy. That's what's happening here with Jesus. What's it going to be, Judge Jesus? Mercy? You going to be nice to her? Or justice? They think they've got him. And in a brilliant act of divine perception of their trap and the wisdom to know exactly how to handle these trap setters, Jesus gives them a glimpse of what it's going to look like one day, follow me, when mercy and justice meet. 
There is coming a day on the calendar where perfect mercy and perfect justice will come to earth and it will be put on display every single time. And it's when the king returns to rule and reign on this earth. The Old Testament looks forward to this day over and over and over again. And one of them, one of the times when a, a writer is looking forward to the day when mercy and justice meet is King David. And look at what he writes. Mercy and truth have met each other. Justice and peace have kissed. I read that and I thought, that's exactly what's happening here in John 8. And so I've entitled this message, When Mercy and Justice Kiss. Because what we're getting a glimpse of here with Judge Jesus is what it will be like when he comes to rule and reign and every decision is brought to him for his ruling. In this courtroom scene which we have before us in John 8, 1 through 11, Jesus flips this courtroom on his head. Oh, justice is done, but against the accusers. And oh, mercy is given against the accused. And so here's the big idea that I want to show you in this passage. Jesus condemns those conceited, self-righteous people, those accusers that are here in this text. He condemns them. Not only that, he clears the condemned. The woman who's brought charges against her, she's cleared. And finally, he charges the cleared to change their course. Once she's been cleared, he charges her to change her course of life. Now, I spent so much time on textual criticism this morning that I can't spend as much time as I usually do on these, so I'm going to move rapidly through these three things. But I want to show you how to apply this text to your life. Are you all still with me? Observation number one, Jesus condemns the conceited. Here's what I'm going to show you. Those who live with an exaggerated estimation of their own moral goodness, an exaggerated estimation of how good they are morally, they are going to find one day that they are absolutely morally bankrupt before God. That's the first thing you see in the text. Look back with me at verses 3 through 9. That's the majority of the text. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to what church? To test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Do you see how the trap is set for him? Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Stop for just a moment. For years and years, I've been hearing people tell me, I know what Jesus wrote on the ground. No, you don't. <laughs> because it doesn't say. So it is foolishness to even apply conjecture here. You just don't know. Because we're not meant to know. So just let it be. What's important is what he says afterwards. Okay? Forget about what he wrote on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him among you who's without sin, I'll tell you what, if you're without sin, I'll throw you the first rock and you can chuck it at her. Brilliant! Do you know what he just did? He just took this courtroom with a, a picture, it, the woman standing in the middle, and all these big, scary law keepers, the morality police, are standing around her. And they're ready, to, they're ready to get her. And she's probably terrified, weeping, and tears flowing. 
And Jesus, in an act of brilliance, he levels the playing field. He takes all of them and puts them on trial by saying, so uh, let me get this straight. You want to condemn her. Okay, afterwards, we'll judge each one of you. Brilliant. Level the playing field. Jesus is doing here what James eventually writes in his epistle. Look what James writes. Whoever keeps the entire law, which these Pharisees would say, I have. Whoever keeps the entire law, yet fails in one tiny little point of it, like a little white lie when you're six, is guilty of breaking the entire thing. That makes everyone in this room completely equal. The person who's had 15 abortions here, you are completely equal with the person who is a Girl Scout and has only done one thing wrong in her life. Equal! Because you have all fallen short of God's grace. That's what's happening here. And he keeps going. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus exposed their conceited, self-centered way of looking at this woman. I'm using the word conceit here. And I want to tell you why this is the perfect word to use. Conceit started to be used in the English vernacular in the 1500s, and here's what it means. Conceit is vanity, the exaggerated estimate, estimate of one's own ability or morality. Here in these, this passage, these Pharisees have an exaggerated estimation that they're good. Well, of course we're sinners, but not like her. You can always find somebody who's worse. Hang around with that person and you'll feel pretty good about yourself. It's exactly what's happening here. They're conceited. Now, as I explained, I don't want you to have to rely on this passage to know that Jesus condemns people who have an overestimation of their morality. Friends, this is the main teaching of the New Testament. This is like Christianity 101. There are so many different occasions where Paul is writing that if you are proud and think that you are the one who doesn't need a Savior because you're not a sinner, you are condemned already. But I don't want to worry about Paul. Paul did the most writing on this. I want to show you Jesus, because that's who we're looking at here. In his most, one of his most beloved parables, it's beloved by me because I use it in so many sermons, Jesus taught exactly the lesson of this passage. Take a look at what he said. It's in Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they treated others with contempt two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus God I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners unjust and who church that's why this fits perfectly or even like this ugh, tax collector I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I was early to church this morning. <laughs> but the tax collector, standing far off, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Could you not take that out and put it in the mouth of the woman caught in adultery? 
the same thing is happening. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. That means in the sight of God as if he'd never sinned. Justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Talking about the day of judgment when he's condemned. He'll be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Isn't that great news? So friends, the point is crystal clear. Judge Jesus condemns the conceited. You don't need John 8, 1 through 11 to know this, but it is a beautiful story here in John 8. That's how he responded to these trap setters, but we haven't even looked at what he said to the woman yet. Observation number two. He doesn't just condemn the conceited. Jesus clears the condemned. Here's what I'm going to show you. Those who are guilty before God, and they know they're guilty, but will call Jesus Lord, looking to Him alone for mercy, knowing that without His mercy, they have no hope. Those who act like that, they will, on the authority of the word of Jesus, they will be forgiven on the day of judgment. Here's what it says in verse 10, first through 11a, just the first part of 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. A title the Pharisees never called him. No one, Lord, Master. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Jesus has just cleared this condemned woman, and you should ask, friends, this is important, by what grounds does he clear her? This is what people have been asking for centuries that has stirred up this big controversy Is Jesus breaking the law here? It says right there in Leviticus 20 that he's supposed to stone her, so what what do we do with this? Should he have stoned her? Let me explain first to you what the law is for and then explain how Jesus can get away with this. This is important, so please listen. First, I want you to think about the law of God, the law of Moses, and all of those 600 other laws that are there, the ceremonial laws, How how are you supposed to visualize those when we're so far removed from it? Let me give you a simple way to do it, okay? I want you to think of the law as two things. A window and a mirror. A window and a mirror. First, a window. All those, don't do this, do do this. Don't do this, do do this, that you find in the Old Testament. Those are a window. Here's what you will see when you look out this window. If you look out the window of the law and you look long enough, do you know what you're going to see? you're going to see how holy God is. The law was given to mankind so that when you look at it and it says, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. You will look long enough and you'll say, whoever has this standard must himself be totally pure, totally holy, without any blemish whatsoever. And the longer you stare out this window of the law, the longer you will say, He is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And God help me if me, a person made to look like him, God help me if I ever ever sin against that law. It's a window to look through to see how holy God is. Somebody who says, how could God be so harsh as to give somebody the death penalty? The only person who ever says anything like that is the one who does not know how holy God is. The more you know about how holy God is, you would say, yes, the wages of sin is death and I am deserving. 
That's what you'll say. But it's not just a window, it's a mirror. After you finish looking out that window and saying, God, you are holy and I see it through the law that you've given me as an image bearer of yours, it's also supposed to be a mirror. And the longer you look in this moral mirror, you're supposed to say, I, I just, I can't do this. I don't measure up to even the first one. Honor your mother and father. I was horrible at that. How, what am I to do? That's not the first law, by the way. What am I to do? Yes, that's the point. The law was given for a window and also as a mirror. And so how can Jesus, looking at this woman who broke the law, and he's the one who wrote those laws, how can he can say, neither do I condemn you free to go? What kind of a judge does that? Let me tell you. The only way that Judge Jesus can dismiss this woman's case is if that judge himself knows that in just a few short months he's going to walk down from around his bench and take the stones for her. The only way that judge can say, I dismiss you and not be called a corrupt judge is if he himself comes down and says, ma'am, you're free to go. Take me away. That's why this judge is able to dismiss her case. Because he himself knows justice must be done. Someone has to die for this crime. And the judge himself decided he would take it. Only Jesus can dismiss this woman from the sins that she's committed against a holy and righteous God. Mercy and justice kissed at the cross because God did justice when he took out all the penalties of mankind on his son and the greatest act of mercy that was ever shown to you and to me was also visible on that very same day. Now, this side of the cross where all of us are, knowing that that happened in history and our sins are forgiven, how should we go about living our lives? Well, James, the brother of Jesus, gave us a little phrase that you should memorize to know exactly how you should live. James 2, verse 13 says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. What this means is that mercy that you were shown on the day when Jesus died for your sins, that mercy that transformed your life and showed you a God that loved you, that mercy will do the same thing when you show it to people who are caught red-handed in a sin against you. And so the third observation that I have to show you in this text is simply this. Jesus charges this now cleared woman. She's been cleared of all charges against her. He charges her to change the course of her life. You'll see it right there at the last thing he says. Verse 11b. Go and from now, so there's a line he's drawing in the sand. Now onward, this is the day when everything changes for you, woman caught in adultery. From now onward that you've been forgiven by the judge in this courtroom, don't let me see you come back into the courtroom again. Go and sin no more. Uh, this is a conversion moment for her. This isn't the first time we've seen Jesus say, go and sin no more. I told you, I don't want you to have to rely on this. We've already seen it in John 5. Remember when Jesus said this to another man? John 5, 14. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So he's cleared of charges 
And Jesus says, don't come back to my courtroom. Go and change your life. Let me tell you why this is so important. More than any other passage I know, this passage has been used and abused by people who espouse what's now called cheap grace. That Jesus forgives you of all of your sins and that's the end of the message. That you're free to leave the courtroom and live however you want. Just go and keep committing adultery. Do whatever you want. There's no need to change your life. That is not what happened on this day of court for this woman. She was forgiven. The charges were released against her. And then she was charged to change her life. Go and sin no more. Cheap grace, if you've never heard of this term before, it is when someone thinks that what God did for them is cheap. Let me tell you something. Grace, salvation, forgiveness is absolutely free, but it costs God everything. It costs God His own Son. That's why repentance is a necessary part of your salvation. I have a simple phrase that I'd love for you to memorize. If you don't like it, I wrote it, and so that's fine. You can just throw it out. <laughs> Mercy is meant by my maker to be the mechanism of my metamorphosis. Here's what I mean by that. The kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. Let me show you a paraphrase of this essential Christian doctrine written by Paul. Romans 2.4 Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? That's what Jesus is saying to this woman found in the act of adultery. As we draw this in for a landing, Jerry Bridges, a wonderful author, uh, he offers a very helpful comment here in his book, Transforming Grace. Just listen to the title of the book. Transforming Grace. Grace that's supposed to change you. He says this. Grace is never cheap. It is absolutely free to us, but infinitely expensive to God. Anyone who is prone to use grace as a license for irresponsible sinful behavior surely does not appreciate the infinite price God paid to give us His grace. Friends, again, picture the courtroom with me as we close. Would you? You can close your Bibles. You're in the courtroom, just like this woman and you've been caught red-handed by God. Maybe it's just a thought, but you've been caught. And as Jesus says, son, daughter, you're free to go. And the officers come and take Jesus and they put him in handcuffs to take him away. And they're leading him out. He looks over his shoulder and he sees you. And you look back and you see Jesus. And you know, I'm supposed to be in those handcuffs. And there they are, taking my king away in my place. Answer me one question before you leave here today. How are you going to leave that courtroom? Are you going to leave that courtroom and say, thank God he set me free. I'm going back to doing exactly what I did before. I'm free. Got my stamp punched to go to heaven. Or are you going to leave that courtroom having been completely changed by the grace that was shown to you? How could that man who did nothing wrong take my place? That grace is supposed to change you forever. Father in heaven, 
Lord, thank you for giving me an opportunity to present this beautiful story to your people here in Beach Haven. What a marvelous picture of the gospel. The wonderful message that by grace we have been saved through faith. Not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. Lord, we've been saved by the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross who paid it all. What amazing grace we've been shown. And so, Lord, I pray that we would hear the words of Jesus spoken to this woman caught in adultery and that we would go from this place remembering the grace that saved us and sin no more. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. And everyone said...